Lord, I have loved the, place, the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The famous refrain of Psalm 26, 8. And as each of us have had a desire of heart today to assemble together on this first day of the week, what a joyful exercise to lift our voices together in song, to pray in the way that we have done, to give thought to a lesson in the Bible hour from the Word of God, and now to give thought for the sermon part of our worship time as well, to some of the extended teachings found in the Word of God. How blessed indeed we each have been, and may we be so thankful to the God of heaven who has allowed it all to, 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 to in fact, be possible. As we are gathered this morning, we're certainly thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership, our visitors alike, and we trust that our time devoted in this day will be in spirit and in truth and will magnify and exalt the name of God, which is the reason why we've come together today. For the last few Sundays, we have given some thought to the Bible's teaching on the subject of fellowship. And as we have considered those things, we've been reminded that God takes seriously the teaching of His Word on the matter of fellowship. And it reminds each of us individually, not only about the matters that we so often face in the world about us, but also the careful carefulness and the means, even of the first century time, to also look again at those passages that remind us about that matter. We have seen just a few of these items in our study. We noted how special it was to consider the fact that we enjoy fellowship with God and also with one another, in the words of 1 John 1, verses 3 through 5. That fellowship spoken of in that place is a fellowship indeed so special as individuals are able to understand the communion with God, a communion with His Son, the communion with the character of the work that He has set forth. We then also noted the lovely aspect of you and I as believers, that we can be there to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep, Romans 12, verse 15. We can be there as an element of encouragement and strength in the midst of a world that so often has so little interest in the things of truth. This, after all, is a group of people who have made it their statement and declaration to one day enjoy the beauty of heaven forevermore. And we should enjoy the characteristic of that kind of fellowship with each other. But we did notice that there are times when that fellowship is challenged because there are those who make poor decisions. And we noted even in those instances, the Bible dis discusses those matters and does so with great care. That was, in fact, much of what we saw last Lord's Day morning. It is today that as we draw this brief series to a conclusion, we have the opportunity to see yet again the beauty of fellowship as it is seen even in an Old Testament presentation. As we begin that, might I invite us to notice that so often we have conversations with individuals, perhaps at work, perhaps individuals in our communities and others whom we know, Sometimes they ask questions about the decisions that the church makes and why a particular element of fellowship must be questioned. Sometimes it seems as if they think it's just personal preference on our part, that you and I make some decision, we just happen not to like that person, or we don't like something that's happened in their family in years gone by. It would be important for us to appreciate the fact that fellowship, we certainly wish it not to be based on anything that is as ordinary as that. We strive to have a thus saith the Lord, do we not? In fact, that text that was read just a moment ago, that text from John 12 verse 48, it still reads, 
He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Isn't it amazing sometimes when we think about fellowship as it takes place in the world around us, it is no wonder that some of those same problems and some of those same matters of thinking etch their way into the church. I've listed just one example or two. We know about instances when judges perhaps make poor decisions because they render a judgment that's partial, because they render a particular judgment, or they deliver a sentence based on a lack of knowledge. Or maybe as they do all those things, they end up basically not punishing someone who was guilty. Or perhaps at times, they end up punishing someone who was not guilty. All of that reminds us how thankful we can be that God's judgment is correct. And it's always true. In Genesis 18.25, that famous statement of long ago, "...shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" We can rest assured then that God's Word is perfect in all of the regards that He has revealed. And in it we find the fact that the judgment of God is sure. Nahum 1 verse 3. That book of Nahum, in fact, as it sets before us in three chapters, the marvelous beauty of even God's rendering in terms of the nations, it did say the judgment of God is sure. That reminds us that one of the features that was so challenging about that era and time had to do with the people to whom that was written. The book of Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, we might remember God had delivered the commissioning message to Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, warned them, urged them to repent. And in fact, in 40 days, destruction shall come unless there's repentance. And we noted that Nineveh repented. They were spared. The love of God poured forth upon them and the destruction did not come at that time. But that brings us to the book of Nahum because in that book, some 135 years later, that same city had now ebbed its way back into the world of sin and what once had been a city given to repentance no longer was repenting. God now sent the prophet Nahum with a message to them that they, in fact, were going to be the recipients of the wrath of God because they had s failed to serve Him recently. Doesn't it challenge us? Doesn't it encourage us to notice again, just as it was then, so it shall remain today, the judgment of God is sure. It is with that thought in mind that one of the next verses challenges us to realize that so often the things we hear and the things that we face in the world about us, challenge in one way or another the truth of the Word of God. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we learn, for instance, that there is but one gospel that has been revealed, and that though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. You and I live in the midst of a world that would like a gospel that's comfortable to every person, that makes a few, if any, demands of me so that I can do what I want, when I want, the way I want, and yet God will still be pleased. But as we might well understand, the gospel doesn't tolerate that. We each must, in fact, come before the same message of truth. Beyond that passage in the Galatian letter, we remember also others reminding us of the elements of fellowship and the special way that they enter into this same discussion. Withdraw yourselves from everyone that walketh disorderly, 
the discussion of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. As we looked at that last Lord's Day, perhaps one final passage that comes before us now that we shall use to help us see the beauty and majesty of God's teaching on fellowship. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. As that passage is set before us in Matthew 18, 20, sometimes we fail to appreciate the context of it. Sometimes we associate that directly to worship services. So where even two or more are gathered, no matter where they are, how distant they may be, or what deserted island they may be on, that if there's at least two, that God, in fact, is there with them with the enjoyable capability of acceptable worship. But the context of that location was not about worship. It was about the character of dealing with problems and issues in the brotherhood. That's the same context where he says, If you have aught against one, go to him first by yourself. And then if he will hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. If he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two witnesses. And again, if he will hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And then it finally says, Take the church, but it was on that occasion, or bring it before the church. And it was on that occasion, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so when that judgment of fellowship, when that character of consideration is set forth using the Word of God, they can rest assured, that congregation, that in fact God is pleased when His Word has been followed and when the things have been rendered appropriately and rightly. As we think about fellowship in that regard, Maybe there's a warning in the Old Testament that helps us revisit the beauty and prestige that's ours to be called children of God by faith. That text is found in 2 Chronicles chapters 18 and 19. It is back to that chapter that I would invite you to turn with me. It is a scene that perhaps is somewhat familiar, but nonetheless, it's one that teaches us much both in our day, even as it did in that ancient day, about the characteristic of that association. The story is a very interesting one. I've tried to highlight some of its main features, but the story unfolds, the historical record, in the following way. This was a rather troublous time in the history of the divided kingdom. On the one hand, there was the nation of Israel. On the other hand, there was that nation of Judah. And as they proceeded along with their separate kings, the time came when the king of the northern kingdom, whose name was Ahab, he had a desire to go and do battle against Ramoth Gilead. It was his desire to conquer and overwhelm that place, but he needed some additional reinforcements in order to do so. And so it was that he made an invitation to the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, to join him and to send some troops that might help him in that battle. At first, it would seem that there was a bit of hesitancy on the part of Jehoshaphat. However... Ahab, not to be outdone, had what we might call a state dinner, a reception in which he set forth the finest of what he could with an intent to persuade Jehoshaphat to be of assistance to him. Jehoshaphat came and attended, and as the events of the evening unfolded, and as the events of the discussion came about, interestingly enough, it happened like this. First of all, there was the invitation Ahab invited Jehoshaphat, come and help us as we do battle against Ramoth Gilead. And upon the invitation, one of the first things from the mouth of Jehoshaphat was, 
let us inquire of the Lord. To his credit, Jehoshaphat had an interest in knowing what the Lord might say with regard to that venture and with regard to that battle. And so Ahab quickly summoned some 400 prophets, and they with one jubilant accord gave their decree that it is right, God shall be with you, things will be well, the victory will be yours, let us go up at once, is almost what they affirmed. As these prophets shouted out so powerfully the word of prosperity and the word of encouragement, Jehoshaphat wasn't convinced. In fact, even after hearing the word that they had shared, he nonetheless said, Is there a prophet of the Lord here beside? Jehoshaphat seemed well to understand that those 400 were not prophets of the Lord. They were other prophets. We might call them false prophets. And we notice that Jehoshaphat had the integrity to ask, Is there a prophet of the Lord here besides that we may inquire of him? To his credit, Jehoshaphat desired another prophet, a prophet of the Lord. The king, with willing ear, listened to the request of Jehoshaphat, and he did say, There is a prophet. There is a man here. He is, in fact, the son of Imla. His name is Micaiah. But the king, King Ahab, had something very intriguing to say. He said, But I hate him. I hate him. Now, why would Ahab hate Micaiah so? He was quick to say, For he always prophesieth evil concerning me. It would seem that more than once, in the times that had been passed, Ahab had had a desire to inquire of Micaiah, or at least had had occasion to converse with him. And it seems on all the occasions, the things that Micaiah had had to share had not been supportive of the interest in the works of Ahab. I hate him, he said, for he always prophesieth evil concerning me. That should have spoken volumes to Ahab, but it didn't. It should have urged him to think twice about the character of his life and the devotion of his behavior, but it didn't. And so on this occasion, the best that he could say is, I hate him. In the verses that follow, we notice that those officers that had been sent to bring Micaiah were those which gave him a bit of forewarning. These officers said, Now you need to be aware of the fact that 400 prophets have come and they have in fact jubilantly and with unison given their voice that the king's battle is a good one and that he needs to go up. Now you need to tell him the same thing. You need to share with him the same message of the 400 so that peace can reign supreme and that all will be well. Micaiah, though, said this in verse 13 of that same chapter, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord has spoken unto me, that will I say. Micaiah was determined to speak only what it was that God had delivered to him, and in those confines he would rest supreme and he would rest in comfort. Despite the fact that Ahab didn't care much for him, and despite the fact that the word that he was to reveal may well not be what Ahab wanted to hear, he nonetheless was determined to proclaim only what God had revealed to him. It is with that in mind we can only wonder that when Micaiah did come, what did he say? The first thing he said was, he listened to what the request was. The battle of Ramoth-Gilead, shall we go up, Micaiah? What's your word? What has the Lord declared? Initially, Micaiah said, go on up. 
And it appears he said that somewhat with tongue-in-cheek. For the king well knew that you haven't told me what you really think, and you haven't told me what the Lord has revealed, and you have only declared, perhaps in a bit of laughing character, what you know I want to hear. What has the Lord said? In the verses that follow, Micaiah revealed this is what God has said, and this is, has been his message. First, the battle is not a good one. You will be defeated, the soldiers will be slaughtered, things will be taken, and things are not going to go well. You shall be scattered as sheep on the hillside. Obviously, the hatred that Ahab had for Micaiah again rang supreme in his ears, for again, he had not said what was good in the ears of Ahab. We might ask in the verses that followed what transpired. First of all, you might notice that Jehoshaphat listened to what Micaiah said, but he ended up going into battle anyway with Ahab. When we think of Ahab, who is it that we consider? He was not known for his righteousness. He was not known for his faithfulness. He was not known for his godly character. He was one who was married to Jezebel. He was one who often wrought evil in Israel. He was one who influenced so many and impacted so many to do that which was not right. And yet on this occasion, Jehoshaphat chose to join forces with him, to join ranks with him, to encourage and support him in going to battle with him, as if he was all right as well. I would ask you to notice verse 1 of that very same chapter, Second Chronicles. In verse number 1 of chapter 18, it simply says that Jehoshaphat joined affinity with Ahab. That means he joined forces and ranks with him, and as if to say that they both enjoyed a common fellowship with regard to the battle and with regard to their standing before the people of that day. As we have unfolded the story before us, it brings us to the very bottom part of that slide. One other thing happened, and perhaps this also was worthy of note. After telling what he did, the king, of course, was rather angry with Micaiah. And he, in fact, had the officers take this man and put him in prison until we come back from battle. It was on that occasion that Micaiah said, If you come back all in peace, God has not spoken by me. In fact, the statement was made that Ahab's life would be taken in the concourse of the battle that he would not at all return in peace. And Micaiah was bold enough to say that if you do, God has not spoken by me. We each can remember that as the chapter closes, this is what happened. Ahab thought he had done a masterful matter at disguising himself. In fact, he put on different robes. He didn't wear his kingly apparel. He, in fact, even had Jehoshaphat dress up in such a way as to draw attention to him. Why Jehoshaphat was willing to dress up that way, the text does not tell us. But this much we do notice. The text quickly affirms that there was an archer that drew his bow at a venture, the text says. He wasn't aiming for Ahab at all. He was not in a position to observe that it was, in fact, Ahab. He was just at a bow drawing his arrow, and when he let it fly, it punctured or, in fact, pierced into Ahab, and he died that very day. Micaiah had been a prophet of God, hadn't he? In light of it, we might now ask, what was the aftermath of this for Jehoshaphat? That takes us to the opening two verses of chapter 19 of Second Chronicles. 
It is with those in mind we come to this. Jehoshaphat, as he had extended fellowship to this one that was evil, this one who had little interest in the things of truth, this one who had directed the affairs of his life opposed to God. And yet, when Jehoshaphat extended fellowship to him in that way, God had something to say to Jehoshaphat when he returned. When Jehoshaphat returned to Jerusalem, we remember that God commissioned a prophet to come and to address him. And the words with which he addressed Jehoshaphat are those that still ring in our ears to this day. I have placed it in italics there at the top of that slide. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? What a penetrating question was asked of Jehoshaphat. Did you note it with me? Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? In the latter part of that verse, the prophet went on to tell Jehoshaphat that wrath upon thee, in fact, shall be the case from the Lord. Sadly, Jehoshaphat, though some good is said about him in the Old Testament, at least on this occasion, he didn't seem to appreciate the powerful bounds of proper fellowship. And as he improperly extended, God questioned him upon that. Doesn't it challenge us today that we live in a world, too, in which many question the integrity and the power of fellowship. There are those who wish, in fact, fellowship to be enjoined with almost no bounds, no matter what the doctrine may be taught or the things that may be considered. And throughout the history of Christianity, many have been those who have felt that way. But we notice that Paul taught the truth on subjects, didn't he? And so did Peter and James and the other New Testament individuals. And as they did so, it was always their desire that men would come to know, love, and appreciate the truth of God. Jesus still affirmed, didn't He? In John 12, verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. When there are individuals in our world who call into question the Lord's plan of salvation, they call into question the only thing, for instance, that can allow a person to be forgiven of sins. Thus, we must take great caution and care with respect to subjects such as that one and not simply extend fellowship to those who question it and think that baptism is unimportant, for instance, and let them think that we agree with them because certainly the Lord didn't and Paul didn't and Peter didn't. But isn't it also interesting that there are so many others as well, subjects that often are difficult ones, but yet that men would rather simply not consider at all. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? We too today surely mustn't uphold the hands of those who hate the Lord and those who have little if any interest in His way but rather that we should strive to pray for them and teach them and assist them and admonish them so that they too could come to know the Lord that we know and that they might enjoy fellowship not only with Him but also with those of like precious faith, Second Peter 1 verse 1. It is true, isn't it, that near the bottom we notice in the book of Revelation we find two of the seven churches especially were those that were addressed by the Savior. In Revelation 2, we remember that of those churches that were addressed in order, there was first that church in Ephesus and then the church at Smyrna. But then the third one addressed was that church at Pergamos. 
and finally the church at Thyatira. And in each one of those instances, the God of heaven had something very direct to say. Each one of them, in fact, were reprimanded because they tolerated that which was false. For instance, that church at Pergamos tolerated the Nicolaitans. That evil doctrine that, that was being taught, they in fact had not done anything to oppose it, but rather they in fact welcomed it and accepted it. Jesus reprimanded them for that, for that corruption was not to be maintained. That church at Thyatira tolerated somebody like a Jezebel who seduced the servants, taught the things that were improper, even sexual nature of sin, and that church there tolerated it. Oh, how powerful and loving it is to see that in that toleration, the Lord reprimanded them and reminds us still that that truth of God has in fact been so beautifully set forth. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus' famous statement of John 8, 32. That truth highlighted and set forth in the words of the sacred text. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, verse 17. As we think then about how special and blessed we are to have the truth, to have the Word of God at our disposal, it truly is unlike any other book, unlike any other document or particular matter that men may have set forth, for it has come from heaven. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Those were Peter's words of 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. As we come here to the conclusion of our lesson then today and of our discussion of the series of fellowship, I trust we've each been reminded of how special and blessed we are to enjoy fellowship with God and with each other, but to always remember that that, special, that, that fellowship must be closely guarded and highly prized, never taken for granted, and never overlooked as if it's trivial or insignificant. The issues that surround the matter of that fellowship lead us to this conclusion. I notice that the slide is gone, and I'm not sure why that is. But the conclusion statement just asks us to summarily consider what our fellowship and our relationship is with the God of heaven even at this moment. Are you saved? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? To borrow the language of Revelation 7 verse 14. Are you one of those described as enjoying that blessed walk of Romans 8 verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. May we each have the powerful desire and dedication to walk after the Spirit of God in such a way, of course, that there is no condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 verse 2. Have you been washed clean then by the blood of Christ from all the sins in your life? If you have, praise be unto God, continue to live faithfully until death. Revelation 2.10 But if you have never been cleansed from your sin, why not today? The baptismal waters behind me are ready. A group of people would be more than excited to celebrate with you and to observe your character of baptism as your sins are washed away. If you have become a member of the body of Christ at some former time in life and knew the goodness of the faithfulness that went with it, 
But you have since lost sight of the great reward ahead. You've since begun to stray from the path of faithfulness. You've allowed things to take place in life that have tarnished and marred your influence for good. If others know about that, why not come back to your first love today? The gospel invitation is always open. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. A convenient time is this one, and if by some means we could assist you in any public character of your becoming more faithful and calling to the Lord, we'd be more than delighted and honored to assist you in the way that we can and to do that while together we stand and while we sing.